0: Thank you, Dr. Allison, for that kind introduction. We'll have to talk over lunch, whether you were using the term world class literally or metaphorically. (laughs) Well, welcome to my second Norton lecture on mere Christian hermeneutics. In my first talk, I described the seminary as a textual community, a reading culture that aims to foster a certain kind of reader. Namely, a citizen of the gospel. The kind of person who knows how to follow Jesus and represent their holy nation on earth as it is in heaven. Gospel citizenship. It requires biblical literacy, everything one needs to know in order to follow the biblical story and the one to whom it bears witness. Biblical literacy also requires literal interpretation. Exegetes do justice to the letter by reading it in grammatical and historical context. Theologians do justice to the letter by, how do they do justice to the letter? Well, they're supposed to do justice to the letter because they know, as Thomas Aquinas told us, that the proper basis and warrant for Christian doctrine can only be the literal sense of scripture. But in what sense are systematic theologians involved in literal interpretation? It's been said that the problem of the literal may be the most fundamental problem in the theory of interpretation. The Old Testament scholar Brevard Childs observes that determining the meaning of the literal sense is one of the burning issues of theology. So my task this morning is first to convince you that there is a problem in defining the literal. And then second, I want to offer a constructive proposal. My fundamental claim will be that disagreements over literal interpretation often have less to do with philology than they do with the kind of frame of reference readers employ. So I'll be talking this morning about frames of reference and explaining that. And I'll be arguing that mere Christian hermeneutics reads rightly for the literal sense when it uses a theological as well as a historical and literary frame of reference. Well, I love words. And that makes me a philologist. How do we best give loving attention to biblical words, these creaturely auxiliaries of the word of God? Ad fontes, said the reformers, to the original sources, yes, but with which frame of reference? You see, to follow the way the words run demands some acquaintance with the way words work. Erasmus was a philologist, too. Erasmus cared about getting the biblical text right. We can thank Erasmus for producing the first critical edition of the Greek New Testament. But he also provided a helpful orientation to the Bible's literal meaning and the task of exegesis. Listen to this quote. He says, not a little light is thrown on the understanding of the sense of scripture, if we weigh up not only what is said, but also by whom it is said, to whom it is said, in what words it is said, at what time, and on what occasion, what precedes and what follows. do You see how much is involved in the love of words. And this is a crucial point. You see, the interpreter's focus is not words in isolation, but words in use or simply put, discourse. Discourse, what someone says about something to someone in some way on some occasion for some purpose. I think that's what is contained in Erasmus's quote that we just saw. Let me suggest that we call what someone says the sense of discourse, and that we call the about which something is said the referent of discourse. Okay, So there's what someone says, the sense, and what we're talking about, the reference. The really important disagreements over the Bible's literal interpretation often have to do with reference, what the author is talking about. And that's why one's choice of frame of reference is so important, because to use a particular frame of reference already is to presuppose that we know what the text is fundamentally about. The frame of reference helps us see what it is about. Now, did you notice that I just leveled the hermeneutical playing field? I suggested that exegetes and theologians are equally biblical, equally interested in literal meaning, but on slightly different aspects. Exegetes, I suggest, focus more on the sense, the verbal sense. But theologians focus on the referent of the text. So this is a grammatical rule that I want you all to follow now. (laughs) It's misleading to say that one of those disciplines is more biblical than another, more letter-oriented than another. Right? Both biblical studies and systematic theology are equally focused on the letter, but in different ways. So here's my suggestion. Literal interpretation of the Bible must do justice to both sense and reference to what is said and to what it is said about. Moreover, Christ is the ultimate referent of scripture because this is what Jesus says. <laughs> He says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me, John 5, 46. So to interpret the Bible literally, we need two principles, the philological to get the the verbal sense right, but also the Christological to make sure we're focused on the right referent. So the uh, subtitle of the book from which these lectures are drawn, the subtitle is, the light of Christ in the letter of the text. The Oxford English Dictionary defines literal as taking words in their usual sense, not figurative. The etymology comes from the Latin litera, which simply means letters. But what makes defining the literal so challenging is that this combination of literals, uh, this combination of letters, the word literal, itself has a history. And biblical interpreters have used the word literal in different ways in different times. Today, I don't know if you've noticed this, but people use the word literal sometimes simply for emphasis, and they often use it in a non literal way. So, for example, someone might say, In fact, they often say this. Someone might say, Van Hooser's lecture was literally electrifying. (laughs) No, it wasn't. I did not shock anybody. Or they might say, Van Hooser's lecture was so convoluted, I literally died of boredom. No, you didn't. (laughs) These are not literal statements. When I often hear the term literal these days, it's in the mouths of a journalist describing conservative Christians who, according to the journalists, believe in the literal truth of the Bible. And sometimes they almost gag uh, saying that, the literal truths. And I, it, what do they mean when they describe us as believing in the literal truth of the Bible? Ironically, the best way to understand literal may be typologically, which is to say, with a five-fold typology. So let me go through this five-fold typology of possible meanings of literal. The first one is the verbal sense. And interestingly, the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church defines the literal sense as the meaning conveyed by the words of scripture and discovered by exegesis. But the common assumption that every word has a basic meaning independent of context its literal or proper meaning, that's mistaken. You can't control the meaning of words any more than you can control the direction of wind. And as we've just seen, the word literal is a case in point. So we need to spell out the way in which people are using the word literal. That's one sense. Uh, The second possibility is authorial sense. And it's important, you see, to distinguish uh, sentence meaning from speaker meaning. The literal meaning of, say, a sentence like, he's hot. What does that mean? Well, it depends on the context. It depends on what someone's doing with those words. Is the context a hospital, where it could refer to a fever? a casino, where it means something very different, a tennis court, which is where I want to be hot, or a college mixer, which is where I'm never hot. Um, (laughs) Literality is a function of the way words are used in particular contexts. Psychological intention isn't enough. Meaning is not an affair of consciousness alone. It's what It's an affair, rather, of communicative intention, what people actually do with words. And the issue that I'm skirting around is whether God, the primary author of scripture, has intentions that run further than those of human authors. A third possibility is to identify the literal meaning with the historical reference, the physical thing or event in the world of the text or behind the world of the text. But as we saw yesterday, in modernity, there's this suspicion that the things the Bible refers to aren't really what happened in history. And so there's a problem with identifying the literal sense with the historical referent, particularly in modernity. And partly as a reaction to that, some have tried to identify the literal sense with the literary sense. The meaning of a story is the story itself. It's a function of the world of the text, not the world behind it. Uh, Brevard Childs, if you know him, he, he wants to talk about the canonical sense. So the whole story of the scripture is literally about Jesus Christ for someone like Brevard Childs. And he says he's simply reclaiming the reformer's view. Childs says, for Calvin. The sensus literalis, the literal sense of scripture, is Jesus Christ. And then the fifth and final type of literality ties the literal to the common usage, not of the author, but of the reading community. Some people say the literal sense is the plain sense, the sense that a reading community takes as obvious. So the plain sense, would be a combination of the verbal sense, plus what has been called ruled reading, the rule that the community uses to make sense of the text. So you see, we've got some people identifying the literal sense with the way readers read, not with the way authors spoke. By the way, everybody wants Calvin to be a proponent of their sense of literality. While a Protestant reformer is probably the last person you'd choose for your soccer team, everybody wants Calvin on their team when the game is literal interpretation. So what actually rules reading and literal interpretation is the particular frame of reference that allows us to see what is being talked about. So I think Bultmann was right, at least in this point, exegesis without presuppositions is not possible. Because literal interpretation always involves a frame of reference. We're always presupposing our frame of reference will let us see what is in the text. And by frames of reference, I mean a historical critical perspective, a Jewish perspective, a confessional Christian perspective. These are frames that affect what we see in the text. You could even think of them as contrasting rules of faith, ways of relating the Bible's literal sense to the reality that it's about. Now, my guess is your hermeneutics textbook haven't often mentioned frames of reference. Nevertheless, I do think it's the lens through which readers determine this important aspect of discourse, what the words we're reading are about. Think of it this way. The literal sense has to do with the way the letters run. The literal referent is that to which the letters run, or that to which the letters point. Think of the frame of reference as the frame of the interpreter's house, or a window frame. It's something we look through to see what's outside. Like literal windows, Did I just say that? Like windows, (laughs) a frame of reference orients us in a certain direction and filters what we see, like a camera lens. In pre-critical times, scripture itself was the lens, the window through which people looked to understand their world. But after the great hermeneutical reversal that I mentioned yesterday with modernity, The Bible often is not the window through which people look. It's an object we look at through something else. That's the great hermeneutical reversal. Now, to see how frames of reference actually make a difference, consider the example of Jane Austen's 1816 novel, Emma. Everyone agrees on the basic story. Girl wants girl to meet boy. Girl attempts to make the ideal match. Girl meets her match. The basic plot is more or less clear. But if you read literary critics, that is, people who've written their PhDs on Emma, (laughs) then it gets a little more complicated. They debate what this book is really about. What was Austen's real intention? What was she really doing with this story? You see, some contemporary readers read Emma in light of gender criticism. Remember my rule. I said that everything in the academy and society affects the way we read the Bible. It also affects the way we read Emma. (laughs) Some people read it in light of gender criticism. And they're particularly interested in how Austen, in her novel, represents masculinity through the characterization of Emma's father and then the protagonist, Mr. Knightley. Others, adopting, say, a Marxist frame of reference, are attentive to the social realities of class, the reality of class in Emma, and how upper class and lower class relate. A third group may have a frame of reference that disposes them to read Emma with an overarching interest in the question, was Jane Austen a feminist? And so on and so on. I've got a book with 20 different frames of reference for telling me or trying to convince me what Emma is really about. And again, it's not the literal sense of Emma that raises the problem. If you've ever read the book, you've probably understood every word in it. You may have to look at a dictionary for one or two words. But the problem isn't with the words. The problem is certainly not with Austen's grammar which is very prim and correct. No, the hard question is, what is Emma literally about? Masculinity, feminism, social class, or what? Now, if you've got that clear, transition with me from Emma to Esther and all the other books in the Old Testament. Same thing goes. I think a good case can be made for reading the Hebrew scriptures with a Jewish frame of reference, the way they did it in the synagogue. But interestingly, early Christians dismissed that kind of reading, uh, Jewish reading, as, quote, all letter, no spirit. But can we read the Old Testament with an explicitly Christian frame of reference? Is that legitimate? Well. Jesus read Old Testament texts, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Isaiah, many others, in the synagogue, and yet he said they were about him. Take one example, Luke 420. Uh, Jesus rolled up the scroll. He had just been reading from Isaiah 61. And then says, and the spirit of the text of Isaiah 61 is, and the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So Jesus has just read that scroll, all the eyes of the synagogue are fixed upon him, and then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, modern biblical critics um, view such texts, or viewing such texts within their imminent frame, say that the New Testament's Christological reading of the Old Testament is simply a big mistake. It doesn't make sense within the imminent frame. They would read Jesus as misrepresenting Isaiah, or at least misrepresenting what Isaiah was about. But Jesus' reading of the scroll prompts the question, what's the purpose of a commentary? What frames or frame of reference should biblical commentaries employ, and why? Uh, Just last week, I endorsed a book on Thomas Aquinas as a biblical commentator. And Aquinas viewed the task of the commentator as making sense of the author's words. And that included for him explaining what things the author was talking about. But you see, Thomas believed in divine authorship. And he thought that the commentator's job is not over until he says what God meant. What's God talking about in this text? And so given divine authorship, any frame of reference that mutes the voice of God risks being less than fully critical if criticism is a means for ascertaining the reality of biblical meaning. Remember, each frame of reference predisposes readers to pose certain kinds of questions to the text rather than others. And I think Aristotle was right in this. He says, if you want to succeed, you have to ask the right preliminary questions. So is asking how an Old Testament passage relates to Jesus Christ, is that a right preliminary question? Or does this somehow violate literal interpretation? WWJD. Well, we know what Jesus would do. I just explained one example. And he, he says, if, you, know, you would have believed me if you had believed Moses because Moses writes of me. So what do you think, true or false? Is reading the Old Testament Christologically a violation of the literal sense? By the way, never answer true or false questions like that until people define their terms. <laughs> what do I mean by literal sense? Um, what I do want to say is I don't think we need to allegorize the Old Testament to discover Jesus Christ. I want to stand with the Reformers and say that the Bible as a whole is literally about Jesus. So what do I mean by literally, having made that claim? Just one example of a Christian reading of the Old Testament, Uh, Brevard Childs, a late Old Testament scholar from Yale, He published a technical modern commentary on the book of Isaiah, the kind you'd expect a Yale professor to publish. But after he published it, he realized how many important theological questions he had left unanswered. And so he wrote another book, The Struggle to Understand Isaiah as Christian Scripture, 2004. It's a survey of almost 2,000 years worth of interpretation of Isaiah. And I do think that studying the history of exegesis is the best way to discover all the challenges of biblical interpretation and to see how many frames of reference have been used in reading scripture. So for example, it was commonplace in the 19th century to read Isaiah with an ancient Near Eastern frame of reference. Um, Walter Moberly, another Old Testament scholar who wants to read theologically, he says that's an inadequate frame of reference, however. You see, the problem with making Isaiah's original historical frame of reference sovereign is that it destroys the canonical coherence of which Isaiah is a part. You see, there was no canon when Isaiah wrote. Both Childs and Moberly want to read Isaiah as Christian scripture, as part of a larger Christian canon. So Childs himself takes the canon as his frame of reference, which makes Isaiah part of a larger work that culminates in Christ. Did you know that Jerome, in the fourth century, called Isaiah the fifth gospel? (laughs) And he says, Isaiah describes the mysteries of Christ so clearly that it reads more like history than prophecy. Now, I want to say that a Christian frame of reference does not need to squelch Isaiah's own voice and discrete witness. I also want to say that the sense, the semantic range of all those Hebrew words that Isaiah uses, those things don't change simply by reading Isaiah as Christian scripture. What's fuller is not the sense, but the referent of Isaiah's discourse. Not census plenior, but reference plenior. And consider this analogy. Maybe some of you are old enough to remember this. But in the 1990s, a series of books called Magic Eye zoomed to the top of bestseller lists. Um, And I like the subtitle of the series, A New Way of Looking at the World. Anybody know these Magic Eye books? Not too many. Okay. The technical term for what kind of illustrations these books feature is a stereogram. There's one. It's an apparently random image. And if you look at it in 2D, You can't really make sense of anything, right? You just see lots of lines. But if you look at it stereoscopically with two eyes in the right way, there's a 3D image there. Let me suggest this. The literalistic way of looking at an image like this sees only the surface. It sees these patterns. And you could describe there were patterns. But they signify nothing. If you look at the image in this way, you see only the letter, as it were, you don't see what the letter is about. To see what's it a, what it's about, you need the right frame of reference, this stereoscopic reference. You need two eyes, and you need to look at it the right way. It helps, by the way, to, to get close to the image and kind of look at it cross-eyed, and then back up slowly, and then it often comes into focus. And when it comes into focus, you see a 3D image. That's the referent of this illustration. And my point is, the referent is really there. When it comes into focus, there's absolutely no doubt what, about what you're looking at. About what you're looking at. The referent is crystal clear. I think something similar takes place when we read the Old Testament with a Christian frame of reference. The form of Christ is really there in 3D. But if you only look at the surface of the text, the, the literalistic level, you won't see it. You won't see it until you use the right frame of reference. By the way, has anybody been able to figure out what the image is? Have you seen it? What is it? Yes, he's seen it. Uh, I'll show you what it is. Does anybody else see it? I don't know how you did it from a distance. That's amazing. You may have a gift. (laughs) But here's what he saw. Three-dimensional image of, and by the way, this is entitled safe. (laughs) You may want to dispute the call, but it's called safe. I think that's the best way I can explain how powerful the right frame of reference is. When you have the right frame of reference, the reference comes into focus in an unmistakable way. So I believe in literal interpretation and in the authority of the literal sense. But because the Bible is divine discourse, the word of God, we do need a theological frame of reference that allows us to see the divine dimension of biblical discourse, what God is talking about, Some people say we need a Platonic frame of reference to access this higher spiritual meaning. One author goes so far as to assert no Plato, no scripture. But I think we need to proceed with caution here, because unless the frame of reference is itself generated and governed by the text, we risk slipping into allegorizing and making the text mean something other than it says. Now, some scholars think the book of Hebrews, with its contrast of the heavenly temple above and its earthly shadow below, employs a Platonic worldview. But I think the law, sacrifices, and the priests, and so on, of which Hebrews speaks, are not shadows of some timeless reality. They're shadows or anticipations of the world to come, a phrase we find in Hebrews 2, 5. In other words, the shadows are foreshadows. This matters because it means that to read Hebrews rightly, we need a frame of reference where the frame is not an ontological dualism, as it is in Plato, but the frame is more eschatological, what's being framed is the distinction between this age and the age to come, an age that has come, at least inaugurally, in Christ. So to read the letter of the text of Hebrews rightly, I think we need not simply grammatical historical, but call it grammatical eschatological exegesis. Because the subject matter of the text is eschatological. And the eschatological subject matter of the text calls for an eschatological frame of reference, which means you're looking at history no longer with an imminent frame, but you're looking at history as a stage for divine action for the progressive history of the covenants, Dr. (laughs) Wellam. The Apostle Paul tells us that the things that happened to Israel were written as an example for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. You see, the events that make up Israel's history were meant by God to prepare Christians to understand what is in Christ? What they should do to reflect their union with Christ? What will eventually become real in Christ? So I love words. But I want to say the literal sense of scripture is not merely philological and earthbound, but theological and Christ-bound upon whom the end of the ages has come. That's the audience to whom Paul is speaking. That's us. We're the people on whom the end of the ages has come. We're the people living between the ages of the first and second coming of Christ. And that's what I mean by reading with an eschatological frame of reference, realizing where we are in the story. Now, if you're keeping score, maybe you'll realize that I'm pursuing two things at once, two goals. I want to preserve the literal sense, philology, but I also want to read theologically. And the hope is to reconcile what has been put asunder, the verbal sense, yes, but also the theological referent. I want to take the literal meaning so seriously that I attend and employ all the frames of reference necessary for understanding the text as human and divine discourse. And my wager is that what I'm calling grammatical, eschatological exegesis brings into focus what we might call the plain canonical meaning. That is, plain to those who read with the right frame of reference and understand that the Bible is indeed about Jesus Christ. So here's my hermeneutical credo. I believe in a distinctly Christian way of reading the Bible. I believe that this appears in virtually every period of church history. I believe that it appears paradigmatically in the Protestant reformers, who were as much heirs of patristic and medieval interpretation as they are ancestors of ours. And I believe that this reformed Catholic, small c, because Dr. Allison is here, this reformed Catholic way of reading is typological, not allegorical. But at the end of the lecture, and in my afternoon lecture this afternoon, uh, of course it's in the afternoon, Uh, I'm going to call this transfigural. Now, I realize I haven't submitted my historical homework to substantiate these claims. For that, you need to buy the book. But with the time that remains, I want to suggest that reading with a grammatical eschatological frame of reference does or may require a change in our social imaginary. And I think this is why I say we need to read the Bible in the church. The literal meaning of scripture means something different when we use that phrase in the church than it does when you hear a journalist talk about it. Because when a journalist talks about the literal meaning of scripture or the literal truth of scripture, they're using a different frame of reference, probably one for whom the Bible is not literally true. You see, we come to understand what scripture is truly about only in the community of faith. And it's only in the community of faith where we would read in a canonical context with an eschatological frame of reference. Again, a social imaginary, I'm drawing this term from Charles Taylor. The social imaginary is the, the tacit story that frames our everyday thinking and experience as human beings. It's our interpretive framework. But it's an imaginary one because the interpretive framework we use to make sense of the world is often a story, and it engages our imagination. I believe in sola scriptura in part because I believe that scripture alone should function as the church's social imaginary. Scripture alone should be the story that helps us interpret our experience. The story for making sense of God what's happening in the world and ourselves. But to read that way, to make scripture perform that function, we need to recover the Christian practice of figural reading. The church through the centuries has rightly put a premium on the literal sense, but it has also recognized that some of the things to which the Bible refers are figures for other things. You see, scripture often describes spiritual things by means of corporeal things. The church is a body of Christ, for example. And I've already said, Paul uh, mentions that the things that happen to Israel are figures or types. Well, these figures or types are the glue that unify the big biblical story and give it its coherence. And it's also the way in which we can read the story of our own lives in biblical terms. One person who did this particularly well is Martin Luther. Luther, for example, referred to the Roman Catholic Church of his day as Babylon. That's a biblical figure with all sorts of resonance, isn't it? And you may also remember that in my first lecture, I gave you greetings from the Northern Kingdom. I'm trying to insert us into the biblical story. I guess that makes you Jerusalem. <laughs> In any case, I want to show you that figural interpretation is a way of honoring literal meaning. That's my challenge now. So a figure is more than a form of speech. It's a way of thinking and, experience thing, and experiencing things as part of a larger divine pattern of God's activity in history. Now, what makes something a figure is the divine intention that establishes a relationship between two or more things so that the former anticipates the latter. So this is a theological claim. I'm claiming that God is the figurative agent. You see, figures aren't something that modern-day readers make up. I'm a figural realist. (laughs) Human interpreters figure God's figurations after him. That's the idea. So for example, the Exodus is a real historical event. But in scripture, it refers not simply to one event, God's delivery of Israel from bondage in Egypt, but it refers to a characteristic form of God's saving action that culminates in what God does in Christ, which is why Luke, in his gospel, is able to refer to Jesus' death and resurrection as his exodus in Luke 9.31. So figural reading understands that events are connected both chronologically and by providential affiliation through time, as earlier and later canonical witnesses attest. This is biblical meaning and biblical reasoning, not merely verbal, but figural, this perception that there's a providential connection between things that the Bible talks about. It's a way of confessing that God is author of scripture and of redemptive history. When Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, they intended evil. But we read in Genesis 50-20, God meant it for good. And eventually, we see how. I think the Old Testament speaks of Christ figuratively. At least, this is what New Testament authors like Peter suggest when they compare, say, baptism into Jesus' death with Noah's Ark which also brought people to safety through water. So does figurally mean non-literal or worse? Is it the same as allegorical? Um, To do justice to this question would mean wading into church history debates about the difference between typology and allegory, if there is a difference. And we don't have time for that. We can only dip our toes in. But let me suggest this. In allegorical interpretation, the kind that the reformers repudiated, in allegorical uh, interpretation, um, the frame of reference is not tied to the biblical text. Okay, That's what I think sets allegory apart. In allegorical interpretation, the frame of reference need not be related or tied to the biblical text. And again, remember that frames of reference are what you look through to see the meaning of scripture. And there are many of them. Their name is Legion. You can read the Bible with a Platonic, existentialist, ecofeminist, feminist or choose your frame of reference. But putting it like that makes the choice seem rather arbitrary, doesn't it? And also, using frames of reference depends on where you put your frames. On the other hand, you can read with Calvin using what he called the spectacles or eyeglasses of faith. And there, the frame of reference is the biblical narrative itself. In that kind of figural interpretation, we see the literary, historical, and theological correspondences between the figure, like the Exodus, and the reality, like Jesus' death. In other words, typology or figural reading remains tied to the flow of biblical narrative in the way that allegory does not. Still, every biblical interpreter, and Augustine knew this, every biblical interpreter needs criteria to distinguish between good or appropriate and bad or inappropriate figural reading. So here's mine. I think good figural reading, is one that thickens, extends, or deepens the literal sense. Bad figural reading is one that thins, stymies, or subverts the literal sense. That criterion only works, of course, if you've got a firm grasp of what the literal sense is and means. And so that's what we better do now. My goal is a mere Christian frame of reference that lets the literal sense come into its own, come into all its glory, rather. And this involves including the eschatological or Christological referent in my definition of literal meaning. And that's part of what I mean by transfigural interpretation, a reading that corresponds to the way biblical figures connect across trans the Testaments and lead to Christ. So the first point to make, and it's an important one, is that literal interpretation involves more than the bare grammatical meaning of words. It's where I started this morning. It pertains to discourse, what someone says about something to someone in some way for some purpose. If we forget that it pertains to discourse, we run the risk of reading these words literalistically. We've got to remember we're at, we have to ask what someone is doing with words. The second point concerns typology or figural reading. When Paul, for example, calls Adam a type of Christ in Romans 5, is he reading something into Genesis? into its literal sense? Is he imposing something foreign onto the literal sense of Genesis? Is he working some kind of hermeneutical alchemy that transforms the original meaning into something else? No, I think the Apostle Paul has a kind of reading that's a matter of discovery, not invention. And what he's discovering in calling Adam a type of Christ is a divinely intended correspondence in salvation history. The two-word description, then, would be transfigural realism. These transfigural connections, these connections across the biblical figures, are really there because they're intended by God. The figures in the biblical text, then, are our entryway into a reality that we cannot grasp simply by using an imminent frame of reference. Now, transfigural interpretation does not change uh, the original meaning of the text. Rather, its communicative intention extends the literal sense by following the way the words run from their original sense to their ultimate reference. So when Christians read the Old Testament transfigurally, the verbal sense, the semantic content, the what is said, that doesn't change. All the work you've done studying vocabulary and working on syntax pays off. The sense doesn't change, and you need to get it right. But what does change by being extended is the referent. The words run to their ultimate referent. And the semantic content of a sentence, that is, what is said, will always underdetermine reference until we figure out whose discourse it is, who is saying this in what context, and for what purpose. So here's the point literal interpretation must love words, yes, but it must attend to more than the verbal sense alone. It has to attend to who is speaking, about what the person is speaking, and to whom. Again, literality pertains to the way the words run. And the category discourse simply reminds us that we have to explain how and why the words are running and who is running them. Uh, The Old Testament scholar Ian Proven wrote a book called The Reformation and the Right Reading of Scripture. And he, in that book, defends what he calls seriously literal interpretation. He says, to read literally is to read biblical texts not only as they were first uttered or written by their originators, but also as they have been placed in larger literary entities in conversation with other texts that are also part of the whole canonical collection of scripture. I think he's making an important point. To read with a mere Christian hermeneutic is to read every verse, every part of scripture, as belonging to a canonical, integrated whole. Why should we read these disparate texts as a meaningful whole? Well, Brevard Childs appeals to the intentions of the canonizers. But that seems rather arbitrary. What, What makes their intentions so special? I think the better course is to acknowledge divine authorial, divine transfigural intent. That's why these books are read as a whole. The only thing that really unifies them is the fact that they have the same author. So it's God who makes the words run a certain way. And when God makes Old Testament words run, he doesn't change their sense, what they say. He makes them run further. He makes them run to Christ. And this is is, um, what happens. He makes them run this way through figuration. Through figuration, the words go the second semantic mile. So words in the Old Testament signify not simply lambs and tabernacles but they actually signify, by way of anticipation, the sacrificial death of Jesus and his body. So figuration does not violate the letter. It orchestrates and completes it. We don't need to distinguish providential ordering and authorial intent if God is the authorial agent. God means things with words and with the things towards those words point. One author on figural reading puts it this way, for the Christian figural reader of the biblical text, God is both an actor and interpreter of the events depicted by the text. They have meaning and significance because they are the idiom in which God acts and speaks. A person or event is a figura precisely because it begins an extended divine utterance that embraces subsequent persons and events. So transfigural interpretation is spiritual, but not allegorical. Again, the problem with reading the Bible with, a say, a Platonic frame of reference is that it overlooks the through line of redemptive history, the canonical context. So the aim is to follow the letter's transfigural trajectory from the literal sense and original historical referent to the final eschatological reference. Like typology, then, what I'm calling figural reading takes into account correspondences between events or people in an eschatological framework. Now, interestingly, if you know about the fourfold reading in medieval times, of the three spiritual senses, the one that most resembles what I'm calling transfigural reading is not the allegorical, but the anagogical, the sense that corresponds to the question, what may we hope? And this, I believe, is how the Old Testament often refers to Christ, not allegorically, but eschatologically. The Hebrew Bible bears witness not to a Platonic idea, but to a Pauline eschatology the already not yet coming of the kingdom of God. I like the way the Dutch theologian Arnold unpronounceable name puts it. Um, He says, when the eschatological sense of scripture is taken as the first of the spiritual senses, the historical dynamic of the drama between God and his people under the Old Testament and the eschatological tension between the present and the not yet in the New Testament can tie biblical studies and systematic theology together. So I'm suggesting then that the literal meaning of scripture is its transfigural meaning, the product of a divinely authored communicative intention that comes into focus in canonical context when read with an eschatological frame of reference. Reading transfigurally, then, stretches the grammatical sense of the letter from its immediate context to the fullness of its ultimate eschatological context. It's a way of reading that is as wholly literal, letter bound, as it is spiritual, Christ bound. And again, I'm calling this transfigural reading or grammatical eschatological exegesis. And I hope that I haven't invented something new, because my goal has been to restate in a fresh way what I take to be a traditional Christian practice, reading the Bible theologically. And I think the Protestant reformers read the Bible in more or less this way, as did many of their patristic and medieval forebears. Yes, I know the reformers railed against allegorizing But they continued to read the Old Testament as referring to Christ. So mere Christian hermeneutics is my attempt to spell out these principles uh, of an approach that puts the accent on discerning the divine authorial intent in canonical context with this eschatological frame of reference. I'm striving not for a lowest, but for a richest common denominator between Christian reading communities, the emphasis on by the word mere, is on what's essential, not eccentric. So to read transfigurally, my last way of saying it, is to read for a theologically enriched and divinely extended literal sense. And it's theological because it's ultimately a function of divine authorial intent that comes into focus in canonical context. And It's an extended intent because it incorporates this more remote eschatological referent as well as the immediate and original historical referent. So in my final lecture this afternoon, I'll continue to flesh out the contours of this mirror Christian hermeneutics, and I'll examine the account of Jesus' transfiguration Uh, in order to make the case that transfigural interpretation is not a distortion of, But a glorification of the literal sense. That's this afternoon. Thank you.